Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles this morning. Oh, I'm sorry, no, that's tonight. Judges chapter 3 this morning. Hallelujah. Sorry. I want to just extend a appreciation to uh, Nelson and Yanni, Aiden, Garrett, and Jeremy, who all uh, helped get this window finished. It's finished, finished, finished. We don't have to deal with falling plastic panels anymore or anything like that. And uh, and uh, also uh, got more sound panels up and uh, musicians area cleaned out. Sound working very well. Appreciate it all. Really, really do. Hallelujah. Judges chapter 3, 1991. The Goliath of the Soviet Union was beginning to fall apart at the seams. And a little nation of less than 3 million people called Lithuania, where I, of course, lived for 11 years, pastored the church there, began its struggle for independence. It began and it climaxed at the television tower. The uh, students and numbers of other people took over the television tower uh, from January 11th, 1991, until the Soviet troops were ordered to shell the tower, killing 13 people. And uh, this began, they also had taken over the parliament building, the tanks were rolling towards the parliament building, and the tanks stopped. And the commander on the ground said he got an order for Moscow, but no one in Moscow would take, uh, uh, would, would say they had given the order. And the little nation of Lithuania was birthed. On the green plates that were in Vilnius, these were the uh, embassy plates that they had. The Icelandic embassy had 01 as their beginning. That meant they were the first nation to recognize Lithuania's independence. America was 14. As they struggled for this, you can imagine the whole system. They have no currency of their own. They've been using the Russian ruble forever. Now they want to go back to their currency at the time was the Lithuanian lita. They want to go back to that. Uh, The United States stepped up and supported them and gave them their currency, basically, that they, uh, uh, it was always tied to the dollar until it wasn't tied to the euro, and eventually they took on the euro. But it was this struggle. I would speak to people who lived in Lithuania at the time, And they would say that the first year the Soviets cut off their gas supply, their their uh, uh, natural gas supply. So this actually caused a very cold country to have no heat. Gasoline was rationed as a result as they were struggling for their independence. 
they began to fight. They began to uh, not necessarily fight the Russians. They, uh, the Russians at one point, there were a number of old ladies who lined the street, or ladies, mostly grandmothers, but some younger ladies. They lined the streets, uh, and uh, the Soviets were, uh, the, the young soldiers were told to fire upon them. They actually lifted their guns and fired over their heads. And in some of the buildings, when I lived there, still were the bullet marks of that struggle. They were struggling to one classic uh, move, and it was it captured in pictures, was when one grandmother went over to one of the young soldiers and tried to give him a rose and he wouldn't take it. So she put it in the barrel of his gun, his rifle, and he didn't take it out. They struggled for what they believed was their purpose and destiny. There are times where in the kingdom of God, we will go through things. We'll go through struggles and difficulties. There'll be times of trying to establish things. Matthew eleven twelve, From the time of John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. So to think in life that there's no difficulties or anything when it comes to establishing the kingdom of God, a church, the purposes of God, that's kind of foolish thinking. To not understand that there are times of struggles. It is in heaven that God will wipe away our tears. The seven no mores of revelation, no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more dying, no more sun, no more moon. And there's one other that I can't remember at the moment. But in order to see breakthrough here, you got to understand sometimes we have to engage the enemy for a breakthrough. I want to talk to you about a man named Ehud. Ehud brought victory despite some things that were going and working against him in life. And so I want to read, it's a little lengthy, beginning in verse 12, going on through verse 30. It's a story though, so it'll move quickly. It says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the sight, uh, uh, in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Amorites and the Amalekites as allies, and he went and out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud of Gera. Uh, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. And Ehud made a double-edged dagger about a foot long and strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothes, under his clothing. And he brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. 
After delivering uh, the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud had reached the stone idol near Gil, Gil, uh, Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. And so the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and pulled out his dagger strapped to his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep, the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull the dagger. The king's bowels emptied, and Ehud closed the lock it closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the the lattice work. Ehud uh, was going. Uh, Ehud was gone. The king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked, and they thought the king might be using the latrine in the room. So they waited. But when the king did not come out after a long delay. They became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the door, they found the master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sereth. And when he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms and led a brand of Israel, a band of Israelites down from the hills to Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you the victory over Moab, your enemy. And they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossing of the Jordan across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. And they attacked the Moabites and killed 10,000 of their strongest, most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped and Moab was conquered that day, uh, conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. I want to talk to you firstly about serving Eglon. Now, a little history. The verse 14 tells us that they've been under Moab for 14 years. Or, I'm sorry, 18 years. Verse 14, 18 years. That's a long time. 18 years is a long time to be under some kind of oppression, being stripped away of identity and dignity. That uh, in Lithuania, they had been under the Soviets uh, for a little uh, over uh, 50, a little under 50 years. Uh, I think it was 47 years of under the Soviet Union. They had struggled under them. Long time. Moab was known, and if you follow them in the scripture, which they are an enemy of God, they appear constantly in times of uh, opportunity to attack Israel. This would go on for a long time. Moab had the country that was on the other side, modern-day Jordan. This is actually, they were the first uh, to defeat the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, the children that had settled on that side of the Jordan, the Reubenites and the the Gadareans and the half the tribe of Manasseh. 
Moab was the illegitimate child. Moab literally means from my father. He's the illegitimate child of Lot having relations with his daughter. Perverse. It's just, you know, the Bible's real. And it doesn't gloss over human messed upness. I know that's not a word, but that's the best way to describe it. Because we're messed up. Right? The term Eglon actually comes from the term of a bull or a calf. It has to do with idolatry. But I want to borrow the term and make him out to be a bully. Because that's what he was. An unclean bully. Sounds a little bit like the devil we wrestle against. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual rulers of darkness in high places. We, we, we struggle against spiritual enemies that are bullies. This bully costs them. Ehud is part of a group that is bringing tribute money. Now, when a nation conquers another, often they can't uh, remove all the cultural things and all that. And uh, at one time in Lithuania, they tried the uh, the czars had conquered Lithuania, and they tried to remove the Lithuanian language. They tried to just make them speak Russian, and they worked against them to try to do this. But they will tax them. They will make them pay tribute. This is kind of why we had our whole Boston Tea Party that led to the revolution was it was taxation without representation. King George would not give the colonies a seat in parliament. And so as a result of that, they said, no, you can't tax us and not give us a voice in London. We're going to make our own government. And thus, the U.S. struggle began. But here's a bully that's costing. He's taking. He isn't giving. He isn't investing in, you know, Jericho or, or wherever else. He's he, he just taken. They just take. The thought of pillaging. I read an interesting book. Many years ago, it was called How the Irish, don't laugh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. It's a real book, and I really read it. But the whole principle of the book was that Ireland, who had been nomadic, had been... The Roman, in their conquering of the world, they looked at Ireland and went, those people are crazy, I'm not, we're not going there. And so eventually a preacher went by the name of Patrick. We celebrate St. Patrick's Day because of this preacher. He goes, he Christianizes Ireland. This is way back before Catholicism had even started. And so he goes there and it becomes a Christian nation. They begin to uh, uh, have revival. They begin to want to learn and read. And as Rome fell in Europe... Books were spared in Ireland until 
the, the, the Vikings came and pillaged Ireland. This has been going on for time and eternity. It's interesting that Eglon sets up in Jericho the very first victory that the children of Israel had. He sets up there. He doesn't set up in Jerusalem or in Shiloh or in any of the other places that governments might have been run from. He sets up on a victory. Verse 13, And Eglon enlisted the Amorites and Amal- Alma- uh, Ala- Ala- uh, another tribe that I can't get a little bit of my tongue around right now. But anyway, the Alamechites Alma- as allies. And he went out and defeated Israel taking back, taking Jericho. The problem is over 18 years, people can get used to a bully, a spiritual bully. They get used to it. He's sitting on the promised land. He's taken away promises. He's taken away victories. Things are not going the way God had intended. And we can settle for it. There's some people, rather than contend for healing, they'll just get used to the pain. Just the way it is. So I'm, you know, I can function if, as long as I don't turn my, you know, or do this, or I'm good. Well, you know, the American system's set up for debt. Debt, that's what the way it is. So I've been in debt and I'm just, it's the way it is. Because that's what, it's not a credit score, it's a debt score. And that's true, actually. Your credit score is not a credit score, it's a debt score. But some people, they settle that, well, you should always going to be in debt. Or they settle for fruitlessness. Yeah, I witness, but I don't expect anybody to get saved. I mean, this is Rochester after all, and... Don't you know? People don't get saved here. I mean, you know, it's not like God could ever do something, I don't know, like start a great American awakening from Rochester or anything, could he? They settle for family problems, marriage problems. Well, our marriage is never going to be right, because you know what? I married the wicked witch of the East, that's why or I married Lucifer himself, don't you know? And we settle. And it can go on for years. Eighteen years. They have been under the thumb of a bully. Year after year goes by, nothing changes. The change comes in our text when they cry out, verse 15, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now, this word cry means to shriek. I don't know if you've ever seen, we were, uh, we were, Swansons are here, I love it, a great couple, we've known them for many, many years. We were talking a little bit about babies and such. You ever see a baby start winding up? Like, you know they're about to shriek. My, we had a kid, he's now in his 30s, but we had a kid in Chicopee when he was born. This kid 
would terrorize a room by his shriek. I mean, terrorize. But the good news is he would wind up. And you knew it happened. You got to cover your ears. Because it's coming. And when this kid would let go, oh my gosh. You'd think that the, the, you know, uh, Dante's hell had been released in the earth. Because it was just a shriek that would just send chills up your spine. They cried unto the Lord. It also carries the thought of not just shrieking from anguish or danger, but it also thoughts has the thing to uh, the understanding in the word to cry is to herald or to make an announcement to cry out. They cried unto the Lord. Psalms twenty-two, verse five. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you, and never were disgraced. Now, I don't know how, you know, uh, if they used a lot of volume or not, but there was definitely passion. And of course, we're talking about the issue of prayer. That's when things began to change. Not, oh Lord, we beseech thee for thy help this day. Because thou art the heavenly father that made the heavenly... Help! That's what they did. They cried out to God. Help me. God, I'm tired of this debt. Help me. I'm tired of being unfruitful. Help me. I'm tired of my marriage being a mess. Help me. I'm just... Just for other people, do you? <laughs> Confess your sins one to another, James says, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual, the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. Effective actually means hot. It actually means passion. It means emotion. It has to do with the thought of pouring your heart into it. Not just playing with your phone. But contending for revival in your life. Ehud was a man who saw too much. When the people of, verse 15, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. Ehad of Gerah, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehad to deliver the tribute money to King Edlong. He was a left-handed man. Now, in many cultures, left-handed people were seen as a problem. In fact, a little useless trivia that I came across. The word sinister, which we know to be wicked or actually is a Latin term for left-handed. It was seen as a sinister thing. The ironic thing is he's from the tribe of Benjamin and Benjamin means the son of my right hand. 
So it's kind of ironic here that God would use him. It's true in his day, left-handedness. In fact, the actual term here means that he was hindered in his right hand. Now, we don't know if that was the way he was born or if he was uh, uh, injured, maybe as a child, whatever it might be. But somehow he was, his right hand was not good, so he was left-handed. And as a result, that's looked down upon. And I'm sure he could have easily used that as an excuse. Well, don't you know I'm hindered? I'm different. It's not, you know, why don't you get somebody better? They could have, he could have easily used all the excuses of why his hindrance wouldn't be good. Yet, he actually uses this to his advantage. That as a man with some kind of issue with the right hand, the king was, defenses were down. He uses his weakness for an advantage. We can do that as well. Not all hindrances are a reason why God cannot help you, why God cannot use you, why God cannot do something with you or through you. Yet this is exactly what we do. We make excuses. I can't do it. I got this problem. I got that problem. You don't understand. I'd love to get out of debt, but our finances are really, really tight. My wife and I were living overseas and we, and the U.S. dollar, like I explained, Lithuania was tied to the dollar. Well, they actually switched to the euro. And this was at the height of the dollar. The euro was new, taking on these new countries and, and such. And the value of a dollar was four litas to one dollar. And then when they switched to the euro, the dollar began to die on the international market. And it finally bottomed out at 215 to one. To put that in perspective, our $650 rent went to $1,125 just on the loss of value in exchange rates. And that happened to everything. And we went in debt. And I, we sat down, we said, this is not a workable, we can't, we can't do this. We have got to pay this off. And we began to make a plan. And we sat down and I got a spreadsheet out, and I, but we began to pray too. We just began to make payments and make payments and make payments. And sometimes it was just a hundred dollars a month, whatever we could afford, but just began to whittle that down. And as we began to see that fall, thousands of dollars of debt, we got down to about $3,3500 left on that debt. And God just really helped us. At the end, it was like just within one week, we had enough money to pay off the debt. God had just moved for us within just uh, probably two weeks. Just supernatural 
blessing. But you got to get a plan. He gets a plan. He takes a double-edged dagger, which we'll look at a little bit more in the symbology of that. He straps it to his right thigh, puts it right here. Now it's under his cloak. Wouldn't have been like a suit. It would have been more like a cloak. But you got to get a plan. You want victory? You want fruitfulness? Let me tell you a little trick. Witness. Don't just hand out flyers. Witness. Engage people in conversations. It really helps. Well, that's their responsibility. Are they responsible? No, it's your responsibility. You want to get out of debt? Get a plan. Let me tell you two things, two tricks that you need to understand to get out of debt. One, you have to be honest with your debt. You ask people how much they owe. Many times either two, two answers come. One is they underestimate it or two, they simply say, I don't know. How are you going to get out of debt if you don't know how much debt you're in? Just saying. How are you going to get out of that? The second thing that we see of him is he uses a double-edged, double-edged sword. Now, in symbology of the Bible... It's the word of God. Psalms 149 verse 6. Let the praises of God be in their mouth and a sharp two-edged sword in their hand. This goes on in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.17. Put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 will say the same thing. You have to apply the Word of God to your situation. It's not just God help me because I've been around for a while. God help me because it is written. This is how Jesus overcomes the tempter. It is written. What does God say about your situation? You know, it's interesting that it's at the, it mentions twice in the text that he brings the tribute money to Elon, uh, to Egon, uh, Eglon. And Ehud leaves. Now, we don't know, and speculate, you can read between the lines and all of this. But he leaves, and he maybe, I don't know, is he chickening out? Is he saying this isn't the right time? But when he gets to Gilgal and he sees the idol, then he turns and goes back. You know, there has to be a tipping point where you just say, enough is enough, devil. Enough is enough. He creates the opportunity. King, I've got a message for you, a secret message. He had the courage to do it. Good intentions aren't enough. Tomorrow, gym memberships 
will go crazy in the next three months. And people will buy the memberships and never go. And they will think, I had the intention, that's good enough. The problem is that bathroom scale doesn't lie. I had the intention to lose weight, but I didn't try. Change my diet, exercise. And if you're looking for, just if you're looking for a gimmicky diet, let me tell you the best diet gimmick one out there is the ELF diet. And I'm not talking about sugar, corn, you know, corn, candy corn, corn and maples. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about the ELF diet. It's an acronym. Eat less food. Works every time. Every time. But you gotta come up with a plan. Let's evaluate what Ehud did. Because it's what he did that makes the great impact. He goes in, he tells the king, I got a message for you. He pulls out the dagger, he says to him, this is from the Lord. And when he sticks him with the dagger, now it says that the king was a vertically challenged man that the dagger went in all the way and he couldn't get the handle out. Let me tell you, you're not going to solve, you're not going to beat a bully like the devil that's sitting on whatever promise God has for you with paper cuts. You're not going to defeat him with paper cuts. You're not going to defeat him by simply... Casually. Oh, devil, go away. And I'll pray that again in two weeks. There's some zeal in this. You know, John 2, 17 says of Jesus, and the disciples remembered the prophecy of the scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. Zeal in some translations. C.T. Studs wrote the famous poem, Some Want to Live with this, uh, Within the Sound of the Church Bell, But I Want to Run a Rescue Shop Within a Yard from Hell. Ehud declares victory. He kills the king, climbs down the lattice, runs away. They think the king's relieved, you know, must have had a good crossword or something sitting on the pot and he's trying to, you know, and they, oh, no, I guess not, he's dead. They finally open the door, find him dead, but Ehud's made his escape. He goes out and he declares victory. Follow me, he says in verse 28 and 29, for the Lord has given you the victory over the Moabites, your enemy. So they followed him and Israel took control of the shallow crossing of the Jordan River from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites 
and killed about 10,000 of their strongest, most able-bodied warriors, and no one escaped. Now think about that. They go from one to total victory. One zealous move to total victory. Applying the word of God and contending for victory in whatever area your family, your finances, fruitfulness, whatever it is. And they had victory over Moab for 80 years. Judges 3.30, and Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. Lasting victory. Things had to change. This is not temporary. We've all had temporary victories. Those kind of stink. I mentioned that there's a town in France that has both German and French signs on every road. They won't change it. They had changed hands so many times through the centuries that they just gave up. They said, no, we're going to just keep these on. And today, that little city, Strasbourg, is actually uh, the secondary capital. Brussels is kind of the main capital. But they, they moved the whole European Union government down there for a summer vacation. It only costs like 12 million euros to do this. And, you know, but politicians... Anyway, that's another story. But but lasting victory. Lasting victory. Doesn't mean that there won't be other attacks. It was this year in 1813 that the British burned Buffalo to the ground. In the, in the War of 1812. Thought we defeated the British before. Yeah, we had to fight them again. And we beat them again. What's interesting is the term in that verse, that day. That day. Not, and for the next five years, the struggle went on, and then finally, after that day. That day. God can turn things very, very quickly. Why are we going to fast for three days? Because we need a breakthrough. You need a breakthrough. Maybe more than one area. And not just a temporary breakthrough. We need some new converts to get it. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Get it. Get it. The, The penny to drop. That's a spiritual battle that every church faces. Pastor Paul Stevens one time said every church goes through four different, you need four different breakthroughs. One is you got to get visitors coming. There's visitors, just people coming. Right? There's seasons where nobody's coming. It's just this siege mentality. Then they come, maybe they pray, maybe they don't, but you got to get them to come back. And that can be a struggle. 
People pray and then they, they disappear. They fall off the planet. They, you know, the number they gave you and they were so excited to give you on Wednesday. Now it got disconnected on Thursday. You know what I mean? It's like gone. People, that's a breakthrough. People to come, come back, pray, and begin to get it. Begin to get a revelation. Jesus is going to change my life and he's going to help me and he's going to save me and it's going to be great. And then the fourth is when they commit to the will of God. But these areas, we need breakthrough in all of them. Your life. What does God have for you? Maybe beyond just a breakthrough in, in a, in a, 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 a financial area or relationship or some, maybe it's a spiritual area like gifts. Or a calling or equipping or a talent. But God has that for us. But you don't get that with paper cuts and not crying to the Lord. You don't get that without a plan and seeing the idol and just being tired of the demonic ruling. You don't get that. Ehud was a man who saw too much. He said, I want lasting victory. Lithuania, when we were there, had struggled from 1991 to 2001 when we were there. They were just getting their footing as a nation, getting recognized by other countries and such. But then things began to excel. In 2004, they were welcomed into the European Union. So now they're a part of Western Europe, which is, of course, some bit of prophecy involved in all of that. But it's also became a very strong place where they could now be less afraid of Mother Russia. In 2005, they were welcomed into NATO. They became part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which Article 5 says if one is attacked, they're all attacked. We are going to defend them. And they're very happy. George Bush came, made a statement. I said to you, uh, they still have a plaque to this day where he made it. If you make an enemy of Lithuania, you've made an enemy of the United States. I mean, they started cheering out, chanting, ah, ah, thank you, thank you. Today, they have their independence, and although Russia's shaking and things may happen, they've been established. And they're a long way. When we moved there, it was markets. There was just a supermarket opening, and by the time we left, there were four major shopping malls and all sorts of things. They had come to the place they wanted to be. We can see a breakthrough personally, corporately, in our baby churches, however it may be, that we can see God do what he wants to do. But it isn't going to happen with paper cuts and silent prayers. It's going to happen when people cry out and want to see and say, devil, you bully, enough is enough. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Every head is bowed. There are people here, you're not right with God. That begins with first repenting of your sins. If you're living in sin, 
you're never going to get the victory God has for you. It's never going to happen. You're never going to see God help you because of the blockage of sin. Sin is not just a little, oh, I'm struggling. It's an, it's a destroyer of your soul. The good news is Jesus Christ came, shed his blood on Calvary's cross so that you can be forgiven and you can be changed. And if you're here tonight, you're not this morning, you're not right with God. I wonder if you'd slip up your hand very quickly. Pray for me. Not right with God. Anyone at all. Maybe you're backslidden. Eglon's come in. The bullies come in. There's sin and habits and things you need broken in your life. Slip up your hand. Say, you know what? I want to start 2024 right with God. Slip up your hand very quickly. Changing the call then to Christians. Children of Israel were in the promised land. They had some of the promises of God, but they didn't. But this bully came in, took over, and sat on the promise. Sat on a victory. Wasn't until a man with things against him said, you know what? Enough, devil. When my wife and I were in debt and we got out of debt, we were missionaries. We weren't, there was no extra money. There was no overtime for me to go and work overtime. There was no opportunities to do that. I was dealing, we were dealing with a ever-changing and fluctuating exchange rate that we didn't know from one month to the next exactly what our, you know, what our rent would be. And God helped us to get a plan together. So you know what? This is what the Word of God says. I'm going to use the Word of God. You want God to help you in your situation? You need to dig in the Word of God and find those scriptures where God said concerning your struggle. God said, I'll bless, I'll help, I'll do this, I'll make you fruitful. You need to find those so that you can apply them to your life. Let's all stand. These altars are open. I preached a little longer, but I really believe going into the new year, this could really help so many people. Let's sing a song, worship is, worship the Lord this morning. For I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end He will stand on the earth. And for I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end He will reign on the earth.
worship Him. Father, we love You.